You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we have an extended cut of the chat I had with Dr. Satomi Saito about detective fiction from Honkaku and Authentic Schools through to Shin Honkaku and more. There was so much that we got to chat about that I wasn't able to fit into the show, and even stuff that I can't fit into this extended cut for reasons beyond my control. But I hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. Let's get into it. I am absolutely overjoyed to be joined on the line by Dr. Satomi Saito, currently a lecturer in Japanese at Clemson University in South Carolina over in the United States. And I first came across Dr. Saito's amazing uh, PhD dissertation on detective fiction and absolutely ate it up, looked through every single page of it, picked up the the charts that you had in there from Soji Shimada talking about the different right. schools of detective fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's been so wonderful to get in touch with you and discuss detective fiction. So I guess I wanted to start by asking you, where did your love and passion for detective fiction first come from and why was that the subject you chose for your PhD back in 2007? The starting point was my advisor. My advisor was uh, Sakai Naoki, who is a professor at Cornell University, and he was a specialist of uh, intellectual history. And he is interested in how, you know, uh, Japanese people's idea about their national identity and national culture has generated in negotiation with other foreign cultures. And he was a, you know, kind of classic scholar focused on Edo period. And I was more decent. Uh, I, I I was more interested in decent development, and I thought detective fiction may be a perfect example through through which Japanese people tried to define what would make Japanese people more, you know, Japanese or you know, just an imitation of Western philosophy. Yeah, I I think the thing that really interested me when I was first kicking off reading through. Uh, your work here was looking at the differences between the early schools of detective fiction. Cause I guess to my mind, uh, there's kind of Shin Honkaku and everything before Shin Honkaku, mm-hmm. but you did an interesting breakdown of the social and authentic schools, authentic being Honkaku. Uh, yes. so how did those two schools came to be and what was the kind of interesting conflict between them in talking about that national identity for Japan and its storytelling? It's a complicated thing. First, <laughs> I just looked back, you know, my my dissertation was more than 10 years ago, and I almost (laughs) forgot what I did in my dissertation. So I just looked back and, you know, went through some of the things I wrote. And some of the things may be a bit questionable at this point (laughs) from my perspective at this point. But at least I tried to delineate the differences between how Japanese people wanted to perceive themselves. In other words, what what kind of people they wanted to be in a particular moment in Japanese history. And it's different from how, you know, people started, uh, people wrote detective fiction. I mean, you can write anything. and You can be a just creative writer. But somehow at certain point, especially with Japan's colonial expansion in, in uh, Asian nations, they started thinking, I mean, what to define Japanese people? I mean, we shouldn't be just importing everything from the West and uh, doing it better. I mean, stereotypical perception that, that Japanese people good at modifying something in for, import and make it perfect. And uh, it happened before World War II. So I believe on your podcast, uh, you started with Edogawa Lampo, Lampo Edogawa. Yeah. And, you know, when we read his earlier stories, it's just poesque, you know, typical orthodox detective fiction. But at certain point, uh, he gave up writing, just imitating Western authors and started claiming that, you know, 
Western detective fiction based on science and logic, that may be good for uh, you know, Western people, but the Japanese people, for all the, all the Japanese people, it's more about the spirituality, more about the psyche of criminals. That should be emphasized. And then uh, Edogawa started writing some grotesque, erotic, crazy <laughs> stories, uh, like you know, Human Chair, mm. the most famous piece before World War II, among all the Edogawa work was Beast in the Shadows, uh, in Duke. And that was a kind of uh, unreliable, uh, typical unreliable narrator type of story. Yeah. And using ero- erotic, grotesque, sadomasochistic setting of urban life. And it, it was the most highly acclaimed among all the Edogawa works. I, I think the thing that's really exciting about looking back at those, I guess, some cultural differences and also the way that Jap- uh, Japanese authors very much use their sense of national identity to tell their stories is when you see the way that they intentionally distance themselves from Western authors. So for Rampo, it was becoming a bit more grotesque. For later on in the Shin Honkaku school, it was very much about the nature of truth and the nature of reality. And you mentioned in their spirituality, and I think a lot of authors kind of bring in ghostly imagery, uh, the the idea of the kami, which, you know, our closest Western comparison is like a god or a spirit, but it's not entirely accurate. Uh, and the thing that's really fun when we look uh, at that sense of spirituality, you know, we covered one of the most famous works, Soji Shimada's The Tokyo Zodiac Murders, is all about spirituality. So why does Japan's identity revolve around, or at least enjoy critiquing these ideas of reality of nature how does that spirituality play into the structural strict nature of something like detective fiction where there are so many i guess rules and guidelines people perceive it's a difficult question but <laughs> the easy answer would be you know this is a common discussion before world war ii about you know western body and eastern or japanese mind so western people they are good at you know having strong army and developing, you know, industries and uh, those uh, massing powers. And Japanese people, we are not so so well resourced, but at least our spirituality should overcome those, you know, just uh, uh, Western power monger uh, modernization. And with our spiritualities, maybe we can conquer or even defeat those Western powers. And that's a you know, the stupid idea, and uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, during that time, Japan needed to fight against those Western forces, especially against the United States. You know, that was a kind of hope for Japanese people that we are superior over Western, pe- Western people, at least spiritually. Yeah. So there, Western people may be materially uh, surpassed, but we are spiritually better. And that's a typical argument started after World War II, uh, before, even before World War II. And uh, even after World War II, typical discussion that you know, Japanese people uh, are good at making everything perfect. Import that, you know, uh, machines, automobiles, or, you know, radios, TVs, and they put some spirituality and make it, you know, magical. So that kind of idea is very strong. And I think we have to take into account those, you know, Japanese people's desire to be a certain group, certain kind of people, or desire to define their culture 
in relation to the United States and Western uh, civilization in general. Yeah, I think the other thing that was really exciting getting into Japanese detective fiction is looking at where, I guess, that bridge was crossed somewhere around Soji Shimada going from the Honkaku and social schools of detective fiction to Shin Honkaku, the new authentic. And the way that it very much adopts a lot of these ideas that you're talking about, but puts them into a newer lens that it, it took someone... Uh, you know, stepping out in front of in front of the pack like Soji Shimada to kind of break that barrier because there was a, a a bit of a poor reputation that had de- developed for detective fiction at the time. So, could you tell us a little bit about what the Shin Honkaku School is and kind of how it came to be in this cultural context? I think we have to separate Shimada. Uh, Soji, Soji Shimada from uh, Shin Honkaku in general. Shimada Soji is, I think, pretty much tried, tried to uh, revive post-war uh, authentic or orthodox, orthodox detective fiction of Yokom, Seishi Yokomito. And, you know, typical, typical beginning of a fantastic or impossible situation and everything should be logically solved. And that's his merger of trying to uh, somehow merge Japanese spirituality or Japanese fantastic situations with Western logic. And he wanted to recover. And he's, uh, I have to say, a little bit uh, nationalistic or let's say yeah. uh, Republican or, or a right-wing person who'd like to uh, revive something spiritual and something uh, fantastic about Japanese, uh, Japanese culture and Japanese things. And he basically said that, you know, post-war social school of detective fiction, they talked about, you know, the, the corruptions of the society and, you know, issues of, of uh, post-war Japanese society. So Japanese society may have, you know, involved into, you know, materially. Uh, prosperous uh, civilization, culture. But Japanese people may have lost their spiritualities. For this particular case, it's not West and the East uh, dichotomy. It's more like Japanese history, how to recover Japanese history. And during that time, Japanese economy may have forgot everything about spirituality, how to recover those uh, spiritualities in writing, using this, you know, uh, people would say, essentially Western format of writing that is detective fiction. Uh, that is that was his effort. But uh, as you may know, that uh, contemporary leaders and critics just ignored him. It's just yeah. just you know many people sort of reactionary and old school and uh, anachronistic. But somehow younger people picked up picked up on you know what Shimada tried. And uh, in my dissertation, I discussed, you know, differences between Shimada's uh, manifesto yeah. of reviving nation and national culture and the spirituality, and that may be better than Western type of modernization. But I think for Ayatsuji, it's something, something else, something, something more. I would say postmodern. I, or I don't want to use the word postmodern, but something more <laughs> postmodern. You never do. Postmodern 
pronounce a word that's just best avoided sometimes. Uh, yeah, because people, uh, I grew up during that time, you know, postmodern was a cutting edge word and uh, cool uh, word to use. But nowadays, uh, postmodern lost all the glory <laughs> and all the value and nowadays, and it doesn't mean anything. But at least I think Ayatsuji, uh, what Ayatsuji tried to do was something more postmodern, criticizing our society in general, that, you know, uh, for example, I mentioned that his writing could be metafictional, uh, that, you know, basically our society, this uh, prosperous uh, Japanese economy, I mean, how can we trust our life in this society? And uh, that's the reason he uses interesting narrative gadgets and puzzles uh, to even question our, uh, our reality or leaders' identities. And that's something interesting about Shin Honkaku. So it's not quite exact revival of orthodox detective fiction. It's more like, you know, orthodox detective fiction plus postmodern element. And that's not just Japan, like, you know, uh, in many other countries, including the United States, you know, many postmodern writers basically wanted to use detective fiction uh, as a kind of setup to question this ultimate truth. And this is basically, you know, this theory that, you know, within the closed system, whether you can prove everything or, or the validity of a certain statement within the closed system. And at least detective fiction journals would assume this detective should provide the ultimate, ultimate truth within this particular context. But that kind of truth may, uh, may not be trusted yeah. uh, anymore. We lost all the ground, ground, ground narrative. And we don't believe those, you know, big ground narratives. And uh, that kind of, you know, question toward uh, conventional ideas of modernism and those grand narratives like religion and uh, our manifest destinies and those kind of things we can find in Ayatsuji's writings as well as other uh, Shin Honkaku uh, Japanese detective fiction writers. Yeah, I think one interesting thing with uh, Ayatsuji and the way that he uses these postmodern ideas to challenge the nature of truth and the, I guess, inspiration that it then laid the groundwork for the Shin Honkaku school is that we only have in English one of the uh, house mansion murder series, uh, the Decagon house murders, but there's so many more of them. And you sent through a list of uh, works that you said that you would like Western readers to be able to, uh, you know, lay their hands on. And there's Forgive my terrible pronunciation, no, uh, that's fine. but the Mairokan no Satsujin, uh, which you said was the trickiest amongst his, you know, puzzle murder series. So how did a series like this, where it's questioning, I guess, the same ideals have such longevity and what should Western readers be looking forward to if we ever do get translations of the rest of the series? I think that uh, Ayatsuji's house series is interesting because it's almost against conventional no conventional notion of detective fiction, uh, detective series that, you know, in which usually usually a single detective try to solve various murders. But it's it's more about architect. In other words, setups. Someone makes a setup yeah. for the story. And, you know, detective is almost like a, I don't know, I don't know, bystander yeah. of something happening, something mysterious happening uh, in the setting. And uh, and in the house series, basically, Ayatsuji 
uh, tries various format. It's sometimes some stories are relatively authentic, pure puzzle, but other stories are more like uh, murder of Roger Ackroyd, Agatha Christie's Christie murder of Roger Ackroyd style, that narrative, narrative trick, narrative puzzle uh, to fool the, fool the audience. In fact, it may be a spoiler, but that Meirokan, that Labyrinth, Labyrinth House murder is about interesting, yeah. interesting uh, narrative, narrative puzzle. And uh, those experiment, uh, various experiment, we can find in ISG's house series. And I think that's a good starting point of uh, exploring Japanese uh, detective fiction genre. But at the same time, I'd like to emphasize that, uh, you know, uh, it's not only uh, maybe uh, conventions of the genre. In, uh, of course, it's about conventions of the, of the genre. And those new uh, Shin Honkak writers are conscious of all the conventions and assume that readers should, should know all those conventions. And sometimes, uh, uh, his assumption that readers should know certain conventions would be part of the puzzle, part of the trick. Yeah. That kind of surprise is based on you know something audience or the reader would be expected to know uh, from this jump. But at the same time, it's about uh, some premises, premises of uh, novels in general. I mean, uh, for example, <laughs> we may assume that uh, the narrator should be neutral. But you know, how can we trust it? Yeah. Or why do we have to trust the narrator is a you know neutral person, or even the gender of the narrator? Typical example would be just you know a beauty of Japanese would be, or the maybe difficulty of transla translating Japanese uh, new new Orthodox school detective fiction would be. You know, sometimes genders are concealed in Japanese. We don't usually use personal pronouns. Yeah. In other words, we are not sure the protagonist is actually a female or a male or even age. Yeah. It's that kind of trick is almost everywhere. So quite interesting challenge, not only to the conventions of detective fiction genre, but also, you know, those premises on uh, novels in general. Yeah, I think there's a really fun thing, and we were mentioning Kami earlier. I know that historically in translation, one issue is that Kami typically gets put as mm -hmm. the masculine god because that's the kind of mm -hmm. Western association, even though that's not, as I was saying earlier, entirely accurate. And there's so many interesting barriers that you have to get around with those translations and why it's so exciting when we get really good translation like the Decagon House Murders. I think the other thing that was really fun uh, you're mentioning in there, you know, the knowledge that people have to have of these uh, of these detective fiction stories. You know, here on the show, we talk about Knox and Van Dyne all the time. So when they show up in this story, you know, we've got a mm -hmm. smile on our faces, but it could absolutely bewilder anyone who's getting yes. into it for the first time. I, I listed one of the one of the novels by uh, Suzuki Michio that uh, uh, no Nishimura Nishimura Kyotaro. Nishimura Kyotaro, Koroshi no Sokyokusen. It's, 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 it's quite interesting. We could say uh, precursor to New Authentic School Detective Fiction. It was published in 1971. And it begins with uh, Knox's Ten Commandments. Yeah. There, you know, uh, if you introduce twins, uh, in the story, you have to say it. And the novel begins with, you know, uh, there are twins uh, in the story. 
but actually your knowledge or uh, of you know twins in the story is uh, kind of a red herring of the true uh, puzzle exactly. in the in the in the novel. That kind of you know interesting tricks or premises, uh, exploitation of uh, all the readers' expectations and uh, premises would be can be found in many Japanese detective fiction. Yeah, that's really fun because one of my favorite books we've covered on the show is Sins for Father Knox by Josef Skvoreski, which Mm -hmm. does the same thing. It starts with the 10 rules for Father Knox and then breaks them one by one as we go through the series. And there's there's something so great about looking back and seeing other authors around the world taking these different approaches. And I really hope one day I get to read uh, get to read this book because I enjoyed Sins for Father Knox so much and I'd love to see the Japanese take on it. Now, the last thing I wanted to touch on before we uh, let you go is while I was uh, in the process of getting you on the show and uh, finding out more about your expertise here, you mentioned that you've been studying web novels, which was really exciting to me because a few weeks ago we were talking with Karen Sullivan uh, from Arenda Books in the UK about what happens when people publish their works online. And I guess I wanted to ask for online novels as a medium, what's so exciting to you about that space and why is it where you've directed your focus these days? Firstly, uh, some kind of uh, afterwards for my dissertation would be, I wanted to cover discussions of, you know, uh, anime adaptation of some of the uh, some of the Japanese detective fiction and the kind of hype of so-called detective fiction type of animations or TV programs in Japan. And what I was interested in, especially in relation to the uh, new Shin uh, Honkaku School of Detective Fiction writers, uh, in fact, uh, really those stories with sensational fantastic murders or uh, spiritual kind of murders can be put into a film because those spiritual settings or exposition of those uh, weird gothic kind of settings like Yokomizo or even Shimada can be sensational value for a movie adaptation. Yeah, but also notoriously difficult from what I've heard. <laughs> yes, but at the same time, it's possible, <laughs> at least in terms of the in terms of the gothic designs and settings, you can adapt. But something uh, movies cannot adapt would be uh, medium-specific aspect of novel presentation, that is narrative. And I think that's an important part uh, why many uh, Shin Honkaku authors wanted to focus on those uh, puzzles in narrative. So it's uh, actually an experiment uh, of narrative-specific uh, presentations that can be uh, turned into kind of commodities for uh, multi-million dollar media franchises. Uh, and I think from there, uh, I uh, started seeing some value in novels because firstly, you know, it's difficult to engage into huge movie projects, uh, multi, multi-million dollar, you know, maybe movie franchise project. But at least for novels, you can participate, you can create uh, your own stories. And that's the reason I started reading. And also that was the period uh, 2005, 2010, around that time, many people started serializing uh, web novels. And I wanted to see, you know, what kind of uh, novels or what kind of specificities they may have in terms of narrative presentations. And I 
you know, many people say many web novels that is, you know, dream comes true kind of easy story that <laughs> yeah. you can be a superhero. You can create a, you know, secondary story based on some kind of premises. But at the same time, we could say, uh, for example, uh, in Japanese uh, web novels, it's very popular that you just use all the setup of typical cliche type of role playing game story. And uh, you pick a different character or a sidekick, or even you can pick a, you know, this enemy's position and tell the entire story from a different perspective. And of course, in order to do that, you have to have that you know, expectation, what the reader may know. In other words, uh, when you try to detail the story from different uh, characters' perspective, you are almost unconsciously doing what those Shin Honkak authors tried to achieve using the, using the value of narrative presentation. So I thought it was a kind of setup, or let's say, you know, this is the sandbox. There are multiple tools you can use, and you can combine them together, and you can create your own story. You don't have to, you know, go into uh, like Tolkien-esque yeah. exposition of this secondary world. <laughs> you know, it, no one can do mm-hmm. that. And obviously, movie in the movie industry would be better providing, you know, although it may take money, but uh, budget, but at the same time, it, it may be easy movie industry to do such a thing. But, you know, as a, as a writer, what you would do would be just using a setup already available and uh, retell the story from a different perspective. Or you can use, you know, uh, if you are familiar with narrative presentation, I mean, split subjectivity, I, I mean, limiting the perspective of the character. So the character's perspective is limited, but the narrator knows more kind of setup would be really difficult. Yeah. But w- w- when you use someone's story and take some, someone's perspective, you unknowingly doing this kind of sophisticated narrative presentations. In other words, I thought what uh, new Honkak uh, authors tried to achieve with their skills in presentation, uh, those, uh, those gadgets, uh, skills or uh, tools are available for free. And by using those tools, you can create your own story in an interesting manner. For example, uh, you know, I started my study uh, by looking at this Maoyu. This is a, not, not a web novel, but it's more like uh, serialized on uh, internet bulletin board. Yeah. There is a kind of a meme that you can story, you can start a story. I'd like a you know first line, you'd follow. And this author just follow that uh, follow that meme and created his own story. Uh, full volume novel starting from the you know really strong, really simple setting that is you know you arrive at the final dun- dungeon and you meet the uh, final enemy, the demon king. And the demon king tells you that, you know, I'll give you the half of the world and uh, be mine. Uh, you know, typical setup at the, yeah. uh, at the final showdown of role-playing, guy, role-playing game, fantasy game setups. And uh, he starts the story from there yeah. on the bulletin board as a platform to tell a story. And that kind of, that kind of interesting uh, experiment in narrative 
And also, you can participate. For example, because it was serialized piece by piece on bulletin board, everyone could participate. And everyone could that, you know, give, give input on the story, development of the story arc. And that kind of, you know, participation and how, you know, those narrative techniques, uh, modernist writers paid so attention to and uh, developed in exquisite, uh, sophisticated manner. Those uh, narrative perspectives and presentations are now available to anyone. Yeah. It's similar to that, you know, internet world. Everything is available. Even ordinary people, as long as you have inspiration and you have effort, you can create something interesting. And that was the reason I moved to uh, same interest in the same topic, narrative presentation, but moved away from uh, detective fiction yeah. to uh, web novels. I think that's really exciting. I mean, I have very limited experience with the field, but from what I understand, particularly in Japan with things like Dojin circles, um, they have a much more, uh, I guess, standardized approach for authors like that doing serialized fiction to then get their work published where there'd be a lot more barriers in the West. So there's a lot of uh, fun ideas for independent creators over in Japan to do serialized stories like that and still end up being able to make a career of it. Yeah, here in the U US, if you try to uh, make, uh, you know, uh, fun fiction for major franchise, you may, you may be sued. And <laughs> good example would be like, you know, Harry Potter franchise. Many, you know, fans wanted to create, you know, fan fictions based on the setups, but basically Warner's brothers sued everyone. So it's an interesting, interesting things going on. But in Japan, it's relatively, uh, let's say, not copyright free, but at the same time, it's more, in, uh, more inclusive, flexible in terms of using copyrighted materials. And some publishers, for example, the publisher who the company who published this story would be Kadokawa, one of the largest, largest uh, publishers in Japan. And that company made equivalent of, I don't know, Random House and supporting those kind of, you know, web series and try to, or we could say, actually, they are trying to exploit those <laughs> you know, free labors of, of the internet users. But at the same time, you know, they are providing some platform. If you are creative enough, and if you can create something interesting using the available tools, I can publish, we can publish your work. And to be honest, uh, nowadays, I think more than half of the uh, anime adaptations uh, are based on web novels. Yeah. So web novels are easily, uh, can be turned into uh, relatively a stable investment or you can get a quick success by writing a uh, web novels. And I just wanted to talk about those, you know, uh, things uh, happening in the Japanese franchise industry. Dr. Satobi Saito, it has been so fantastic having you on Death of the Reader. You have no idea how much I have enjoyed this discussion with you. Thank you very much. I also enjoyed, oh, actually, I learned a lot from your podcast. I mean, I didn't know people started showing interest in Japanese detective fiction, at least in the States. Not so many people are interested. Uh, but uh, the Dekagon House Murder was published and it was picked as one of the uh, must read at Washington Post, I forgot. I don't think many people picked up on, you know, this this uh, uh, novel. But somehow, I don't know. It's 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 also an off topic, but uh, but uh, it's a small it's a small world. Uh, 
the publisher, president of the publishing house, the locked, locked, uh, locked room, John Pugmire, uh, is the father of the student I taught. Oh, that's crazy. In Montreal. So, and uh, he knew, uh, my student knew uh, that, you know, I was interested in detective fiction. He introduced me to uh, his father and John contacted to me. And again, he also read my dissertation and asked, asked a series of questions. I, uh, and also he wanted to, you know, have a list of novels that should be translated. My topic was uh, the Decagon House Murders. And I'm not sure how much uh, John uh, <laughs> took it seriously, but at least he published it. So, so I got, uh, I, I got, uh, I, I got, I, I got the sign, signed oh, copy. Oh, that's fantastic. There are, there are 26 copies uh, produced and I got the, I got the, I'm not sure it's because I was less important among the old, <laughs> among all the contributors, but, but anyway, I, I got a signed copy. So it's, it's, it's a small world. Dr. Satomi Saito there from Clemson University over in South Carolina. If you want to have a look at the list of books that Dr. Saito gave to me that he would love to see translated into English, I'll have that up in the description of the podcast. And I am hungry to read some of those when we get the chance. And uh, if you work for a publisher, maybe it's a gold opportunity to strike while the iron is hot. Just a thought. Thanks for joining us here on Death of the Reader.